Our guest on Aboriginal Way this week is anti-nuclear activist Karina Lester. Karina grew up on the APY lands and her late father was Yami Lester, an Aboriginal elder and nuclear campaigner who lost his eyesight after the Maralinga nuclear tests in the 1950s. Karina continues to advocate against nuclear weapons and the Kimber nuclear waste site. In 2017, she spoke to world leaders in New York at the United Nations Conference on a Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty. The UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons came into effect last month, with 50 countries on board, but Australia yet to sign. Let's hear our interview with Karina now. Firstly, I wanted to talk a bit about you know where this all started. So your late father, Yami Lester, obviously was blinded because of the British nuclear bomb at Maralinga. How important is it for you to continue his legacy? Well, it's very important. I think, you know, it's important to keep the story alive and ongoing as well. So um, that's been a part of my journey, I guess, in really keeping Dad's story that started, goodness me, back in the 50s, really, um, because in 53, Australia had its first mainland nuclear test um, at a location called Emu Fields. Um, and it was those tests that had the fallout over the Wallatina community um, back then in 1953. Two tests, Totem 1 and Totem 2. Um, and so just, you know, going from that story and my father having gone through what he experienced firsthand from those British nuclear tests and the fact that I was born into, you know, the family being the, the youngest of us three, I've sort of picked up in keeping, you know, Dad's story alive and ongoing for, for the generations to know and for the wider community of Australia to know what happened in South Australia and how it impacted on Aboriginal people. So um, this journey's sort of been generational now for many years and really, you know, journeying into different directions as well. But a lot of the work that we've been doing is always in in remembrance of what happened in the British nuclear tests that happened in the 50s and 60s at both EMU and Maralinga. I, I did see that you were able to speak at the United Nations conference about nuclear weapons. Do you want to talk a bit about what yeah. that was? Yeah, definitely. That was in 2017. I, I had the privilege of travelling over as civil society um, taking Dad's story and, and Arnold's story across the oceans to be there at the United Nations to speak um, during the time of negotiations for this treaty. So everyone was giving their stories and evidence and, you know, civil society was well represented because there were many, many survivors from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So Hibakusha was well represented plus many of our mob, you know, who were exposed to many nuclear tests around the world. Um, they were certainly there in numbers, and that was a big part of this whole treaty. Um, and, you know, the treaty recognises that the impact of these um, testings and, you know, use of the weapons in, in Japan and in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, the, the impact it had on many people, um, around the world. So it was really important for us to take that story. And as a second generation survivor, it was really important to continue on the story of dad and what happened to his people back then in 53. And, and you know, to, to be his voice as well through the, the treaty negotiations. So he was 
well aware that I was travelling over. He was still sitting down home at Wallatina at the time and I told him that I was heading across. He was a bit nervous and anxious yeah. of myself travelling with my eldest daughter, Jessica. Mm. Um, but the both of us were really up for the challenge and, and felt that there was the support, but also the need for us to be part of these negotiations. So it was really important. So I spoke there presenting a statement from the Pacific region and the Indigenous people of the Pacific region. Yeah. And the statement was representative of, you know, all of our Indigenous groups in that Pacific area speaking up strong about, you know, these tests that occurred in in our areas. So whether it was, you know, in Australia, in South Australia, um, in the Marshall Islands or in Tahiti as well. And, you know, the, the test they did in the atoll and the beautiful oceans. So many of us were there to represent and, and share those stories and get those stories into the treaty. And so article number six looks at victim assistance and environmental remediation. So that's a huge part, but there's an there's an acknowledgement there of the disproportionate impact on Indigenous peoples around the world. So very important and pieced it together. And, you know, it's been a huge journey for many of us around the globe in keeping, you know, this legacy and momentum and story ongoing for the future generation and for you know at the end of the day it's a, a world free of nuclear weapons that are so catastrophic and you only have to hear the stories from Habakusha and yeah. survivors and just to know how horrid they really are and how destructive they really are so you know that's such an important piece of work that's been done by a global mm. movement of people to really speak up strong and to, you know, you know, get those nations to disarm themselves now. And obviously we have this new treaty, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. If we don't have these nations signing up, what are you worried about? Well, it's still, if, if there are countries or nations around the world that still hold and have these arms, that are active, there's still that threat of it being used on people mm. um, through conflict. And so people are saying, you know, survivors and, you know, groups and people who have been actively involved for, for the whole peace movement for decades, um, this is not a new thing. This has just taken a lot of time and effort to to get it to this stage, now we want to get it to the next stage, which is to disarm everybody. So there's still a lot of work that needs to happen and people are aware of that. And, you know, we, we do want nations that hold nuclear weapons to listen to the people's voices and concerns and stories and, you know, to, to have a shift and change within their governments and in their systems to hear voices, you know, they are in power because people have elected them through yeah. a democratic process, which is a very Western system process. You know, you mm. vote people in, but it's the people of that country that vote them in. Yeah. So if it's people of that country wanting and seeking a world free of nuclear weapons and that possible threat of nuclear war, then it's the people that will put an end to these nuclear weapons. 
Yeah. And that's starting to occur. We're seeing this wave and this movement of mm. people who are speaking up. And, and you see it across other important key issues like climate change. So th if the people are being well-informed and people are being educated and informed and walked through processes, yeah. then people are part of that movement can feel that they have been part of that change. Yeah. And that's what needs to happen. And Australia, we need to continue to talk to our mob, our own mob, and then we need to continue to work with our Australian local governments and governments of the day. And we need to continue to, you know, reflect on where we are as a nation, but also, you know, put pressures on others around the world. And we're part of the Pacific, Asia-Pacific, there are Asia-Pacific countries that have signed on the treaty and New Zealand's one of them. You know, we need to learn to stand on our own and hear the voices of our people, which are Australians and Aboriginal people, people were the ones impacted by those British nuclear tests and, and others in the surrounding regions of, you know, the EMU fields and Maralinga. And also there were those tests in WA on the islands, at the Montebello Islands. So many have a story to talk about these black clouds, you know, black mist that rolled over their traditional lands and the impact that happened to our people and how we suffered from this. So if you get that movement of people, I think you get that movement of pressure onto the government of the day to think and think seriously about really addressing this issue. and. The plan is to get Australia to sign on this treaty. That was going to be my next question. Yeah, I think, so what kind of pressure do you think is needed now? You know, we have this treaty that exists and you have nations that have signed it. What are the next steps? What needs to keep happening to convince the Australian government to sign this treaty? I know next month there will be talks within the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. Um, in Australia, we'll be talking about those next steps to outline clearly what is our journey now since the signing and since it becoming into force, entering into force, um, what are our next steps. Um, we're always reminding everybody to continue to put the pressures on your local governments and to spread the word to your neighbours and friends and family and so forth. To, to actually have the discussion around this and then also to, you know, work on better education to the wider community mm. about this and giving information out to people so they can make their judgment and make their own decisions. But, you know, having had all the information, so they need to be well informed, of course, so they can give their consent or, you know, a push towards... Um, freeing the world of nuclear weapons. And the more work that ICANN does to let them know we are wanting to um, free the world of these catastrophic weapons, the more we can put the pressure on our Australian government to sign and be part of this. Yeah. And why hasn't Australia signed this treaty? What's stopping them right now? Um, I think, you know, you hear from some of the politicians that there is 
some global instability out there, that they are concerned about their relationships with those countries. And, you know, you, you just have to look in the media out there and see Australia's relationship with China and, you know, the, the issues that are coming up there and, you know, the relationship that we have with the US. And because the relationship with China is tense, then we're going to be loyal to the US. So they're real big huge political global issues and you know that that they are really hard to work through and slowly slowly work to get them on board to sign the treaty and so it's a, a huge challenge for everybody involved but there's hope and yeah. I feel that there's a, a wonderful opportunity for us to continue continue our great work that we've been doing in ICANN to you know speak openly and confidently and competently with those government organisations and, you know, governments of the day to really work closely with them to, you know, sign that treaty and play that role. Is is it going to have a huge impact on our relationships that we do have with the United States? I'm not sure. But there's, you know, there is support out there within our own community. And I think that it's uh, responsible for Australia to be hearing the voices of of people from that country. And, mm. you know, we've there's been a lot of work happening. We did some poll work in July 2020 last year. All right. There's yeah. been something along 71% of Australians that are saying, let's sign it and let's, you know, make this happen. Mm. Um, with only 9% who are sort of opposing it. But, you know, we're certainly, the education and that word and message is getting out there to sign that treaty and great work that is happening with the Australian Red Cross and yeah. Australian Medical Association and, you know, Australian Free, Nuclear Free Alliance and all these organisations and bodies are also getting involved in those discussions and that's better informing those who are connected with those organisations as well to then well-informed Australia as a nation about, you know, why we should and why the support is there from our Australian people to sign on the treaty. Last year, you spoke with Aboriginal Way in opposition of the nuclear waste dump near Kimber. You know, Aboriginal people have suffered from nuclear weapons testing, but do you feel like the land has recovered since then? And how would a nuclear dump add to the problem? Nuclear dump will add to the problem because it'll be ongoing waste issues and concerns for our environment. So this is, you know, nuclear or radioactive material um, is material that hangs around for quite some time. We're talking thousands of years. Um, this is still radioactive. And if they are in, you know, buried in the ground, there are those risks of it being exposed if there are any human accidents there. You know, the, the risk is too high for many of our First Nations mob to, you know, not be for it, for them to not to be concerned, if that makes sense, in that, you know, the risk is so high that First Nations mob have to be concerned about it because there's no guarantee around it. There's no guarantee around the safety or the management of that. There's always human error, and that's the risk that we're not wanting to go down. So 
Mm. We've always said no as Indigenous people or Aboriginal people of the state of South Australia and strongly and rightfully so as survivors of those British nuclear tests. We come from those first-hand experiences. Our traditional lands were tested on where nuclear weapons at different, different levels of tonnage of you know, high-level radioactive material being used that has now spread right across those areas of land. Who's to say that they are clean? Um, you know, apparently Australian government had gone through a cleaning-up process, but there's no guarantee that that land is safe. You still have radioactive reading when you go out to places like the village, to Maralinga Village. Um, so radiation is still quite active out in those places. And they're saying now they want to stick in radioactive material into the ground. So the solution is, you know, they've outdone themselves as, you know, th their only solution is to stick it into the ground. Now, this is stuff that they have taken out, removed from the earth, played around with it and made it highly radioactive. And now their solution to the problem is to bury it in the ground. No concreting, barrel work or whatever is safe in store, storing those materials and those highly radioactive materials underground. So there is the risk to our environment and the risk to the damage of our culture and our law and our language and our ways. Um, oh, look, I think all I want to say in relation to the treaty um, for the prohibition of nuclear weapons um, is to say that it's been a huge global effort by everybody. Now, in 12 months' time, there'll be a huge meeting in Geneva um, where everyone around the world will be uniting to sit down and to really have that very difficult and complex conversation on how we're actually going to disarm those nine nuke nations and how do we get those nine nuke nations on board and so the world will get together in Geneva and we'll sit down to have that very difficult conversation about you know a, f a future and a world free of nuclear weapons and that's definitely going to be the vision the vision is there to get rid of these catastrophic weapons the world has done it to disarm you know landmines and chemical weapons and so forth you know, it needs to be done for these weapons, nuclear weapons as well. So it's going to be a lot of work, a lot of hard work by everybody and by the world, you know, the people of the world speaking up and speaking strong about, you know, this vision of world peace. And I think it takes away, you know, this false story of security that, we as a world, we're supposed to feel safe because our country has bigger bombs than other countries. That was anti-nuclear activist Karina Lester speaking with Aboriginal Way about the latest on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. I'm Caleb Sweeting. Thanks for joining me.